Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of the It's All Sport podcast, the first season communities. Today I'm joined my good friend and co-host Anna and we have got a fantastic guest for you, Simon Beck, the world's first snow artist. A man born in London who's moved to the French Alps, previously a cartographer and a professional orienteering map maker who became an artist in 2004 creating enormous intricate designs. He has over 599 artworks to his name, creating the 600th actually at the time we're recording this podcast. I'm very glad we got this podcast guest on. Arna, maybe you could tell us a bit more about him. Yeah, Joe, when I researched that guest, I was truly amazed by um, the artworks he was producing. Large-scale geometrical figures in the snow, and he's only using... Um, super primitive tools essentially a compass and snowshoes and while he produces his artworks he sometimes spends up to 10 hours daily in the snow and walks up to 30 miles to complete a single artwork it's absolutely fascinating and like you I'm super glad that we got him on the podcast he um, received quite a lot of international recognition and some of his artworks were commissioned by some of the biggest brands in the world and art societies and in 2016 the National Geographics channel um, aired a documentary that ran by his name Simon Beck the snow artist so an absolutely interesting uh, and fascinating guest that I'm looking forward to hear more about in the podcast episode yeah I mean in, in researching this guest he, he also has TED Talks he has an Instagram account that has over 100,000 followers I'd highly recommend that you go check him out honestly you, you will not believe the level of intricacy and, and enormity that he's managed to dis- to create with just his own feet uh, having started this career so late not a person that you'd imagine would have moved into an artistic career he, he seems almost as surprised himself as everyone else is around him um, a super interesting character a man walking alone in the mountains but just creating absolute beauty um, yeah, very, very interesting guest. Uh, I hope you enjoy this podcast just as much as we do. Uh, I'll now hand over to ourselves to interview someone. Back. Hello, all sporters. Welcome to this next episode of It's All Sport. We're now welcomed in the studio by our guest this month, Simon Beck. Welcome to London and welcome to our studio. Morning, Joe. <laughs> and also Anna, of course. Nice to be here again. Uh, you've probably been asked this question a hundred times, but uh, it's a good way to start. How did you get started back in, I think, 2004, wasn't it? And what inspired you to start? Which is indeed the usual question. <laughs> in 2004, I sold my house in Bracknell, because the market was right, and bought an apartment at a ski resort in Les Arcs, which is in France, fairly close to where France, Italy, and Switzerland meet at one corner. And the, the intention was to spend the whole time skiing and generally enjoying myself. I thought I'd run out of money by the time I reached the age of 57 and then come back to Britain and earn money from my old job, which was map making. Yeah. So, after skiing one day, I wanted to get some exercise. I didn't really feel energetic enough to walk up the local mountain, which is what I knew would normally be doing. And I thought, look at this nice snow-covered frozen lake over here. I thought, let's make a pattern on the lake. And that's how it started. Just as a bit of fun after skiing one day. I had no idea how good it was going to look. The following day, from the lift which overlooks the lake, ski lift that is, I looked at the drawing on the lake and I thought, blimey, I had no idea how good that would look. Yeah. It took a while to get going, in fact, because at the time, people regarded me as the local nutcase who was probably going to die either falling through the ice or in an avalanche. 
<laughs> when I got a digital camera a couple of years later, I started taking photographs. And the long-term intention was to create a book of photographs of my drawings. But 2009, I decided to stop serious comp competitive orienteering and make the snow drawing my main physical exercise winter activity and make as many as I could uh, so when conditions were right, I'd do drawing in priority to skiing. And that's when I started really making a lot of drawings. And then 2011, I was out of action for four weeks after a hot operation. And I used that time to set up my Facebook page. And once you put things on Facebook, it just rapidly spreads all over the internet. And the whole idea of putting these on Facebook is people can steal it and spread it around. <laughs> and that's when my fame spread. And soon offers came in to do some work in return of some gear and then in return of the money. Well, that's, that's how I first saw your work, as I see most things in my life, which is scrolling through Instagram. And then these designs came up, and they're absolutely enormous. Anyone who's listened to this who hasn't had a look at them, you're doing yourself a disservice because they are stunning. They're huge. And then to think that it wasn't a team of people doing it. It was one man alone in the mountains walking. It was fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. It is very towering um, work. One day I hiked and done blocks from the nearest road in one day without using any of the railways or ski lifts or anything to get to the start. Three and a half thousand, no, 3,300 meters up and down in one day. Jesus. It's well beyond what a lot of big walkers could do. Yeah. I reckoned, judging by how tired I felt at the end of that, about equally tired how I feel at the end of a really big drawing, a sort of 10 or 12 hour drawing. 10 or 12 hours. Yeah. When I started doing it, um, how old was it? 2009, just over 50. Um, it would take 10 hours to do a really big drawing. Um, I reached out maybe too, too tired to go on. It takes me a bit longer to do it now I'm older. Or I can still do the same amount in one day. Yeah, I mean, one last winter took 15 hours of pretty non-stop activity. Wow. You touched on quite a couple of things that I think we're going to um, come back to later throughout the, the podcast episode. But you said your um, very first work of art came after a day of skiing where you would typically exercise. So to some extent, one could argue that your art was somewhat um, born out of sports or the refusal to do sports. Um, to what extent do you maybe perceive your art even as a sports or because there's a lot of exercise involved? What are maybe parallels between sports and your arts practice? Well, to make these drawings, I draw upon skills I've learned through orienteering and map making, accurate use of magnetic compass bearings and distance determination using pace counting. And the physical fitness comes from competitive orienteering or more like trading for competitive orienteering. But it, it could equally well be a, a non-competitive activity like just hiking in the mountains. So, provided you've got the fitness and the stamina to do these things, you, you can do them. And measuring it out using compass bearings and pace counting is not that difficult. And if you haven't got enough skill to do that, you could do it other ways. You could, you know, you could use strings, bits of string or rope with marks measured along instead of pace counting. A lot more time consumed, but it, it could be done. It's something everyone can do theoretically. But, you know, like like most art, you, you go along and say, I could do that. But the point is, Picasso did it. I didn't. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you said about orienteering. I mean, I, I have an idea of what it is, but I think a lot of our listeners won't. My idea is that it, it is competitive hiking through either mountainous terrain or other areas against other teams or is it individual? It's an individual sport. 
99% of the time with a few team efforts. But yeah, competitive orienteering is an individual sport and the focus is on the navigation and the fast running. Orienteering traditionally is a forest sport. It's in a forest so you can't see what the other competitors are doing. They disappear through the tree too quickly. So you, know, you don't give your give, give control sites away. And you're just going, going through a forest. Okay, look at your compass, right? Roughly just sort of a little bit left of northeast sort of thing. And maybe for some feature, you can then stop and look at the map and say, okay, I'm there right now. Let's do a fine, careful navigation into the control at the end. A bit like finding a way to the studio here. You know, use, use a different map when you're 50 miles away to the one you use when you, you do the last little bit. So, you know, navigation is always like that. So you switch to different gear when you're getting near the control point. And many years ago, I had an office job. I, I gave up that to do map making. And then I used the skills I used in map making to do the work in the snow. Because you're using the same skills in reverse. Distance determination, using pace counting and accurate use of compass bearings. Um, when you're drawing in the snow, you're making something on the ground agree with something you got drawn on a piece of paper. It is map making in reverse. Could you run us through the process then so so you're using the skills you used as an orienteerer to plot out this course how long does it take to plot them out beforehand and does it take a lot of effort trying to find a spot to do it or do you get given spots to do it how, how does this process work right well take the process of making the drawing first assume you found a spot you're absolutely right you have a the first stage is the accurate measuring that is you, you careful Pace counting your compass bearings, and that will determine the accuracy of the end result. So, typically between one and two hours of careful, accurate plotting and plotting, you will have the mainframe drawing plotted out. And that's the answer to the question how do you get it so accurate? It's great care at that stage. I might add a careful selection of what you design can be done without accumulating small errors. So, the first stage is the careful plotting, one or two hours. You've then got the drawing of the remaining lines, which is done by judgment, drawing up the dots and more, and you plotted earlier on. So once you've got all the lines in, in place, they are the shading of the areas, just walking backwards and forwards until you've got an area shaded. And then the fractals around the edge of a drawing is another stage, which takes probably two or three hours, typically. So the other question was, how, how do you find a location? Well, where I live in, in Lezac is where I've done two-thirds, maybe even three-quarters of my drawings where I live, and of course, where you live there, you soon know where the correct locations are. There's about four favourite locations I use. Within that four is a pecking order, the first priority, second priority, etc. Exactly what to do will determine on factors like have people skied through the area I want to draw on, walked through it. Maybe the wind as well might, if there's a bit of wind forecast, one or two locations are prone to wind, wind disturbance. Wind can wreck a drawing. In the Alps is not usually a problem. In Colorado, I went to 2020, we did, I think, 12 drawings, of which 10 were affected by the wind. Two were completely destroyed by the wind. So the 10 that were affected had to be reinstated. Um, in the preparation phase, before you actually execute the artwork, um, how much thoughts and, and also exercise do you put in preparing yourself for like the physical endurance and the, the, the conditioning and, and, and all the stuff you need to go um, through in that respect in summer I hike in the mountains um, because I, I just like it anyway and make a few drawings in, in the beach as well in winter making the drawings is physical creating physical preparation 
usually you're either making a draw or recovering with recent but yeah if you get a long spell when conditions are suitable for drawing i will go jogging in the woods now now and then walk walk up the stairs in our building <laughs> 10 floors <laughs> yeah, but it was really bad, and I need some exercise. I have to you know, do that. Not not very much. I don't really like doing it. And we're surrounded by woods with a fantastic network of um, the there I, I live in Tarentaise in France. From the town up to the resort is about thirteen hundred meters, the height of Britain's tallest mountain. Know this. And from the resort to the top of the mountain at the back is another eleven hundred meters. There was huge amounts of hard work involved in just walking around in the woods there's not usually any need to do anything like running on roads or in, in the gym or anything else just do what you like doing hiking in the woods some of your designs I mean not only do they take 10 hours in a day but they take days in a week to create not only getting the weather conditions right but also having to remain focused for that period of time how do you go through that process as you're walking well it's not that focused because once you've done the accurate plotting and the main lines and done my judgment, most of the thing has been done there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's dead boring. I mean, once you've done the plotting and plotting and the judgment of the main lines, secondary lines, I mean, you then put your stereo on and just blow along a cloud nine and it's your stereo plotting along. I was going to say, because I, I used to work um, as a cleaner at my school um, and a three hours a day, completely solitary work. Yeah. Um, and it's quite mind-numbing, same stuff oh, every yeah. day. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. Because I, I had a house, loads of siblings, always really loud. Um, and I quite liked just being on my own, in my own zone. Do you enjoy that element of the process? Yeah, I tend to antagonize other people. They annoy me and I annoy, I annoy them. <laughs> they tease me and I snap at them. <laughs> Yeah, I get consistently the worst mark you can get on my office job for ability to get on with other people. <laughs> <laughs> but did you listen to music when you were doing your school thing? I listened to books and music. But oh. Because music, if there was a four-minute song, I'd get two minutes in and i know how it's going to end. Book, i just kind of like go along the long journey of it. Um, yeah. But I'm assuming you listen to music. Yeah, yeah, classical music. <laughs> I don't like pop, which is one of my problems. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, I mean, the whole thing would never have got go if we have these personal stereos. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was just wondering when, let's say you start an artwork, right? And then the weather conditions change for whatever reason and then you can't finish it. Um, how does that make you feel? Does it make you feel as like a like a defeat? Does it um, motivate you to do even more? Do you just say, all right, I'm just going to move on to the next one and produce the next piece of art tomorrow? Or, or how, how do you feel when that happens? Well, any outdoor activity, you've got to accept that the weather's going to mess things up now and then. But we do have weather now. And what you try and do is you try and do the drawing on an acceptably good day and try and get it done in one session for photographs for the following day. So what you're looking for is tomorrow it's going to be a really good day. And if you're confident tomorrow's going to be a good day, you then go for the drawing on the day before tomorrow. Today. <laughs> The most common reason for failure is actually failure to get decent photographs of because it's cloudier than we thought it would be. When people ski through it, it's not such a problem. You get to know where people ski. Um, people skiing or walking through it is becoming an increasing problem <coughs> because the resort's getting ever more crowded. 
And this is, at the moment, the main perceived problem of global warming. We're fairly high up, so we've got snow. But the skiers tend to be crowding into the higher resorts where you can more rely on good conditions. Um, yeah, to answer the question before it's been asked, how is global warming affecting it? We are getting a lot more rain now than we were when I went to Arc 2000. Yeah, I mean, it was rain all the drawing sites. We had a trend as our rain last New Year. It was disastrous because we've then got a five-week dry spell. I, I see you are both in awe and at mercy of the nature. You know, you're constantly surrounded by beautiful scenery, mm. but also not only does the snow have to be right, you have to have good conditions when you're walking, but then also clear skies at the end of it. So it's this whole process to go through. How do you think you've got more connected to the area you, you live and also the kind of nature around you by, by doing your art? Well, I know it intimately. The main connection is really with the people who work in the resort. Resorts be very good in terms of letting me walk around there on my own after the lifts closed and when the area is closed, which is, I mean, it's very dangerous being up there on your own. Yeah. I mean, I can't come from background of, of mountaineering and I've got all the right gear and I think I respect the fact that I've, you know, I've climbed mountain blocks six times. Um, you can be expected to know what you can and can't do on a mountain, but it is, it is, yeah, it is pretty dodgy at most resorts, but if you go up there after the resort and like, insist on taking me down in a slow, slow piece back sure. So, yeah, the local resort's been very helpful. And I'm sort of, you know, for the first time in my life, really, I feel I'm a member of a community over in, in the Alps where I have previously. Um, drawing is part of a landscape, and the landscape's part of a drawing. I mean, both together work out as a team. And for some photographer's point of view, the drawings are a great way of fitting in boring foreground in a picture. <laughs> so you can take pictures you wouldn't otherwise be able to take. If you see people running around on the beach, I make my sand drawing sometimes. Good foreground's got a drawer in the background, got his Brian down this sort of little mountain sticks out of the scene of a Bristol channel. So, yeah, I mean, the drawing is part of a landscape and, and these they do complement each other. The transient nature of the work has been touched on. Um, the fact that you can make this amazing design and then immediately just disappears afterwards, even if you get the right photo. Um, you've mentioned before in an interview um, that you don't mind the transient nature of it because of the photo. You think that that immortalizes it. Mm-hmm. To me, I, I I agree with the the design itself, but I think the art also comes in the physical efforts of yourself and also the kind of personal sacrifice to create these designs. Do you feel, in some ways, that the man walking alone in the mountains creating these designs is the art? Yeah, the process of making it. I mean, one wants to make more time lapse videos of these things and make that the artwork itself. The trouble is, that a lot of the work takes place at night and. Yeah, and a lot of, there's a, a lot of, quite a lot of thieves in ski resorts. People people go to the resort to look for things to steal. You can't leave things lying around in in a resort. So actually, making videos is not as easy as some people think it is. And also, the the drawings can't be seen when the sun isn't shining on. The whole thing works because of a shadow cast on the, the footprints. Um, as for it being removed, well, the thing is, if they didn't get removed, you wouldn't be able to make another drawing on the same site. The favorite drawing site at Les Arcs and I have now been 60 drawings on, I think. Favorite sand drawing site, I'm, I've made 190, I think, on exactly the same location up at Brian. So, yeah, you know, you, you'd sooner run out of fresh canvases if it didn't get removed. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, now, throughout your career, you've obviously done, I think, you said somewhere maybe around 400 pieces of art, right? It's and 400, I think, yeah, it's just under 400 snow and 
just over two sand. Okay, cool. Sigma total is 599. Oh, wow. Yeah. Important. Oh, yeah. Sand plus snow. I want to get to a thousand of Tamariki AU80. Oh, good luck with that, I'm sure. I'm sure you're going to get there. Another 15 years. What, 399 drugs to do? That sounds, that sounds manageable, doesn't it? Mm. Um, now, these 600 um, pieces of art obviously different in size and shapes and all of that. Is there somewhat of a dream project, something that you would love to execute if you can, maybe just yourself or with a team? Is there anything you dream of and that you want to complete before you end your career? Mm. Yeah, there's quite a few. There's, there's some designs I'd like to create. Some require a use of GPS to correct small errors, and that'll need very accurate GPS. And there's, there's dream locations as well, what we'd like to make drawings on. And I'd love to make one at, well, Central Park in New York would be a great place if that's ever going to happen. It's like Buckingham Palace Garden, about the nice, nice lawn. It's really impossible. You use all sorts of sort of famous places, one would like to make one of these drawings. Um, but there's free summits that drives in and the Dolomites very famous these three peaks yeah. Bishop's Mitres um, there's a couple of lakes there which would be a fantastic place to make a drawing but um, really I mean, the, the more you think about a question like that the more dream places there are more like, like to make a drawing you, you said before in an interview that you had a bit of a dream of working with a team has that dream materialised? not yet no the trouble is of diaries and as if you the last taking a chance of the weather. Completely contrary to the way you get results is by waiting for the opportunity and then going all out for it. But so it, 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 it's something one would like to do. And I'm not working hard to make it happen because it probably isn't going to happen. But I mean, if people approach me and say, let's get together and make a really big one, and I say, okay, right, here's the opportunity, let's make it happen. I guess you could plan easy with sand and that in that situation because trying to get the perfect conditions with also a team involved as well. yeah I mean there's a lot of overhead expenses in snow drawing in sand not, not so much there's quite a lot of people doing sand drawing anyway people who draw the same beach as I do indeed some of you have a slight argument about <laughs> the use of the beach <laughs> but yeah I mean if they wanted to work with me then we could make a, a bigger and better drawer um, I think I've or sort of sold my sold my case with them. Um, having pointed a bit of fun at crop circle, all to do with my legend, even might have been known to do it in the past. <laughs> That's fair. Um, we briefly spoke about the snow and the sands. Do you have any preferences in terms of where you produce your artworks, um, either while actually doing it or which outcome you find aesthetically more pleasing or interesting? Well, everyone agrees that snow is better. Also, there's a lot of people doing sand and many doing snow. There's a few people doing snow now starting to compete with me, but no one's done like hundreds of drawings. Um, I think the answer is really in good conditions. Um, good conditions on the beach are better than poor conditions in the snow, and vice versa. So, good conditions on the beach mean you haven't got loose bits of seaweed on the beach, and a nice warm sunny day so the beach dries quickly because you. You've got to have the surface and dry and the wet, wet sand underneath the surface. It works on the intertidal zone. Um, and in, in snow, yeah, perfect conditions in snow would be a, a really hard base, really frozen, mm. solid ice, and about six inches or 
loose fluffy snow and no wind without meeting any resistance at all and just keep going until you finished it rather than keep going until you're too tired usually you finish when you're too tired and don't always get it done in one um you said before uh, that you have used political activism in your like uh kind of protest pieces or, or messages yeah. yeah yeah <laughs> do you feel like this is something you would like to continue or are they just kind of fun projects that you were doing I do when I'm asked to do it, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of an environmental message in, 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 in some of the drawings. But doing writing is tedious and time-consuming. Um, everyone just wants to look at the, the drawings, the geometrical drawings. But, yeah, I mean, the drawing really speaks for itself. You can't have a good drawing without good snow. Mountains in the background aren't looking so good now because the glaciers are melting. And, of course, you know, last year's statistics was the... Out of rain, we had then long dry spell, only half the number of drawings got done. So. Did you ever receive a particular response to some of your artworks that maybe still stuck in your mind, as in someone reacted to either an artwork that had maybe a political um, message, or maybe not someone that was really amazed by the work you did that is still um, in your mind? I get often asked which is the best drawing. There are some outstanding drawings which I've done, and those always remain. Reactions to no, I, I don't think uh, people say they like them. There's no drawing, so this is fantastic. You know, there's been a couple where people who work in ski real. I said, I think that's the best one you've done. So yeah, those do stand out in my mind a bit. Do you do you feel like you do them for your audience, or do you feel like you do them for you? It's a bit of both, but mostly for myself. Well, for the internet audience, yes. Yeah, I think for myself, for the internet audience, people who see it, I think it's probably 50% myself, 30% the internet audience, and 20% the people who see the real thing. I, I really like that, that aspect of it, though, the, the, the fact that it's such primitive tools to, to use. You're using mm -hmm. snowshoes and a compass. Mm -hmm. But then to become an artist through it, you have to rely on digital media. So not only your headphones keep you focused the whole time, but you've got the digital camera and then also the wider social media presence. I think that that, that balance is quite interesting. Yeah, we're relying on it, yeah, but it's just a means, a means of disseminating your, your creation. Very efficient means as well. Only know me because of the internet. Do you think you would do it without? I think you would... It, now that you've done these designs, now that you, you've got used to doing them, if you were told one day you can you can't permanently record these, you can't disseminate them as easily, would you do them for yourself? Not many. No, it's, uh, the whole aim of result is a photography and, and and being able to show it to other people. I'm, I mean, I've done what you know, hundreds and hundreds now. I'm getting a bit bored of it. <laughs> uh, as someone who didn't seem to plan to move into a artistic career do you have any advice for people who uh, may be inspired by your work personally or just haven't quite found their group yet well all I can really say is have a go at it or have a go at something else you seem to be able to do well you know, the, the thing about my work is I'm doing it better than anybody else is doing it and that's well, actually the most surprising thing my things on the internet no one else is doing this I was amazed by that but yeah I mean If, you, if you're, even if it's something really weird, really crazy, if, if you're doing it better than anybody else is doing it, then you may get the attention and possibly, you know, certain other work 
fully work. Um, I regard myself as being very privileged to get paid to do something I actually quite like doing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I just say it's someone I just uh, say, go for it. You've got an idea. Of course, the great thing about what I, I do, I have, I have to spend money up front to make it happen. I just go and do it. Yeah, without the internet, never. You spoke about um, the people in the resort giving you a feeling of community, people you work with, um, as well as obviously the um, online community on the social medias. Do you think there's a prospect of essentially growing a community of snow artists? Do you think eventually maybe some people will imitate your work or get inspired by what you're doing? And could you be a leader in that movement? Well, yeah, I mean, in the long term, I'd quite like to move into a teaching role. At the moment, there's some people just like, like me do very thing on the in, um, in their local snowfields and put it on the internet. Yeah, there's a, there's a chap in Canada and a chap in Finland who've got some pretty impressive drawings on the internet. They, they may be using teams more than I have. And in the ski resort, people have spent a lot of money to be there. And they sort of think they've got better things to do than just plotting around in the snow. Yeah, up, up in Canada and, and, and in Sydney, where it's just flat. Um, they use drones, take photographs of it, and have got some pretty good results. What do you think is one thing you've learned about this process? What one overriding about either yourself or about um, the place in which you live? Is, is there something that you feel like you've taken away from this process, just personally? I would say the thing is you should never give up. Opportunities are out there. I mean, when I was young, I thought I'd run out of money. And then something came along, map making. And then I got fed up with that. And I thought, I'm going to run out of money at 60, 57, I said, didn't I? That was my original prognosis. And then I had to go back and do map making, worry things when I got older. Um, and again, something else has come along. Well, something else came along in map making, making maps of school. It was more lucrative than making maps of forests. And and then the snow drawing came along. And so, yeah, I mean, all my predictions about how much money I'd have at some time in the future turned out to be pessimistic. Somebody's always come along and you can get some more money from something. So, yeah, I mean, I just, you know, get out there and enjoy yourself. You're only young once. Just don't do anything stupid. You know, don't have an accident. Don't, don't, you know, take funny substances. <laughs> don't, don't drink too much alcohol, sort of thing. Yeah, come on. Just be sensible and then look after yourself and then you only live once. No, I like that. I like that a lot. Okay, I, I think we can move into our concluding remarks, but Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a pleasure hosting you. I hope you've enjoyed the process. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes. Thank you very much. Cheers. Okay, welcome back. Super interesting guest. I hope you agree. Uh, it's very different from guests we've had on before. Um, I mean, Orienteer to his core. I mean, we, we set this guest up with a parking space about a half hour away from our studio. And uh, when, when Simon turned up, he used a compass to get there and had walking shoes on, was in the walking gear with a big mountaineering backpack on. I mean, to his core, uh, a walker. and <laughs> Someone that we find really, really interesting to talk to and converse with uh, and, and just has stories of of something that is quite solitary but, but definitely meaningful and has definitely changed his life um, for the better and given him a lot of, a lot of purpose. I don't know, Anna, did you have any more thoughts on that? Yeah, I agree. And I think having Simon on the show was um, once more an example of where a blend of sports and arts can really reach millions of people, uh, which he has done. And um, what was what was interesting, I thought, was that while he was practicing his art, he built and also 
found a community of of, of people following, and, and that is something that is truly inspiring. Yeah, I mean, obviously, our first season is titled Community. So as soon as he mentioned the word communities, it gives a green light to us. But there, there is definitely something meaningful about that. The fact that he said that he didn't really score very well with 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 personable things in his old job moved to france not with a really clear idea of what he was going to do and then managed to find a community that i i think that's really inspiring but um one thing that i thought was really interesting about it is, is that sport often you you are quite fascinated by the amount of effort or, or training or endurance that was gone into each of these moments but you only ever see the moments whereas with simon's work the art is that kind of like recording of effort you know you, you you see that whole process and you can see every footstep of it you can imagine how long that would have taken not only in that one design but also in perfecting that design i mean 600 designs is, is incredible um what a long but also kind of late career i i find it really interesting yeah and i would probably even go a little further than that um claiming that his art is something so poetic a man walking all by himself in the snow in like very cold temperature he's creating something that is so transient that is so depending on external factors such as the weather that can be destructed in minutes um so he also has to deal with a lot of yeah arguably failure or or defeat and always getting up and just doing the next artwork is is something that um i just find super impressive yeah I agree. I I think he he had a a way of almost trying to downplay his art and how beautiful it is and, and also the effort that goes into it. But like, it's undeniable. It, it, if you haven't already looked at it at this point in the podcast, you're doing sort of a disservice. You have to go and look at it. it I think it's absolutely fascinating. Um, but yeah, I think the main thing to take away from our audience, we always like to leave you with something to take away with, is that Simon found his career so late. You know, like he was 57. He had no plans to go into it and found something that he liked you know like it's so much easier to be good at something that you like i think it, you you just get so much more motivated by it, something that will make you spring out of bed in the morning and i think it's never too late to find something you like um you just have to try some some weird stuff out try doing some five-pointed stars in the snow you know and you'll you'll work it out from there but yeah arno it was a great time having you on man thank you very much and we'll see you guys in the next episode on that note follow us on all digital channels <laughs>